Yo, what's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 41 of Great Quarter Guys, a show where we break down the walls in between freight, finance, and tech. I've got my friend here, Kevin Hill, with me. I've also got Seth Holm on the line. We have a fun show today. This is actually, this pains me to say, but I'm going to call this the Alvin Kamara episode, number 41. I feel like he's the best number 41 in all of sports right now. I'm a diehard, lifelong Vanderbilt fan. So to call this any type of uh, ex-Tennessee player, number episode kind of hurts me. But Alvin Kamara, he's a baller. So we'll go with the Alvin Kamara episode today. We're going to talk about, we've actually got a few, a few topics that I've been meaning to hit the last few weeks, and we just run out of time because I, I'm terrible at packing too much into one episode. So we're going to talk about, finally going to get to uh, Pershing's blank check company. This is Bill Ackman's new SPAC that they're going to go after mature unicorns. We're going to talk about where we think he might go with that. He's got a, a perfect tracker perfect track record with restaurants maybe he continues that trend we'll hear from seth and kevin on that in a moment but then we're going to talk about some department store bankruptcies there's been i think 16 so far in 2020 a lot of big names uh the latest one being a steinmart back on august 12th Mm -hmm. so we'll we'll talk about where we think the other ones may go if there's going to be any more major dominoes to fall throughout the end of the year and then we've got a fun conversation really focused on the economy. We're going to talk about whether we think we're going in, in the course of inflation or deflation. I think there's uh, some big differences in our belief here. Kevin is on the deflationary environment side of things. So we'll, we'll get to those right after our uh, You Care or Nah segment. The first one, we'll start it off the top. I'm going to send it to you first, Seth. This is the U.S. Home Builder Sentiment Index just hit a 35-year high or is actually tied for a 35-year high uh, when the data came out, I think, just yesterday. What do you think, Seth? you care or not about the U.S. Home Builder Sentiment Index being so high? I do. I think you have to care. Uh, I think a house is, uh, you know, every U.S. consumer, most U.S. consumers' primary asset by far. Uh, it's all it's their life savings and it's all their net worth. So uh, it's good to see. And, it you know, it, it positively impacts consumer confidence, even though we got a bad consumer confidence number, I think, today. Uh, you know, how, rising house prices, as long as they don't overshoot like they did in 2006, uh, you know, they, they help out consumer sentiment and uh, net worth. So, yeah, I do care. Kevin, you care or not about the Home Builder Sentiment Index? I, I, I don't. Not because home, home builders aren't important. Homes aren't important. And, and Seth is exactly right. That is uh, most people's biggest assets. It's, it's show me two or three months uh, of printing that, that big of a number, and then I'll start caring. I think the home builders might be a little bit too optimistic, which happens from time to time. So I don't, I, I, personally, I don't believe it's really that high. I disagree with you in thinking that they're a little too optimistic here. I think on Seth's point about the consumer confidence, that number was a bit too high last month. I think we kind of rushed to judgment and got a little bit overexcited about the retail sector. Uh, but I do definitely care about the Home Builder Sentiment Index. Um, I talked about this on Freight Waves Now today with Anthony, if anyone wants to take a look at it. There's a lot of tailwinds right now. You have, uh, you have really low interest rates. You have a, a, supply, a good supply of labor, which was an issue pre-COVID. The only headwind here is something I wanted to bring up to you guys, whether you care or not about this one. And Seth, what do you think about lumber prices? Have you been paying attention at all? They've doubled since the beginning of 2020. You care about this or not? Uh, no, I don't care. Uh, but I have been following it. I got to say it with an H, right? Nah. No, you, you say it uh, however you want. Nah. <laughs> I say no. Nah. I'm from Memphis. So, um, yeah, no, I don't really care. But, um, you know, uh, with lumber prices, you know, that is a headwind eventually to housing because that's a primary input. Uh, and the other thing that pops into my head is there's this company that I used to own called Trex. They make these synthetic outdoor decks. It's probably a good thing right. for them with the booming house market. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I do think that eventually it'll, if it becomes too expensive to build a house, that will become a headwind. That, that's the only aspect I care about there. 
Yeah, yeah, I do too. I, I think it's as big. It's, it's double. The, there's a lot of confidence out there. I think there are a lot of tailwinds for home builders to be optimistic about, but I'm not sure if those won't get pulled out from under their feet in, at a certain time. I did care about this until I spoke to Anthony about it, uh, our chief economist here at Freight Waves. He says that he believes most of this is just from the shutdown of the mills in in April and May. They were not expecting this this mm-hmm. influx of demand, so they went ahead and shut down operations pretty early and, and kind of caused a, a supply panic here. The only thing I do want to say that I, I am a little bit worried about here is that Canada is also having the same type of new interest in home building. In July, they had their a record high for new home sales, which has spurred on a, a boon of housing starts there. So that's our biggest competition for wood. They are our biggest uh, import. We import a lot of wood from there. So there's just more competition. So something to pay attention to. I think once those factories get back online, we're going to see those numbers come down a little bit. But in any case, they've doubled since uh, the beginning of 2020. So big deal. All right, number three. ExxonMobil, who has been a part of the Dow in some form since 1928, since its beginning, its tenure as the longest-serving component is now over. They have been pulled out and replaced by Salesforce. Kevin, you care or not? I do, just for the reason, because I remember, and I had to look it up, the year 2011. I remember this because it was huge news, because Apple was about to surpass ExxonMobil as being the most valuable company on the stock exchange. What we have nine years later... Apple is sitting today at $2.12 trillion market cap, ExxonMobil $172 billion. So it's like worth 5%, right, if my math is right, 5% uh, of, what, uh, of what Apple is today, a decade later, yeah. Yeah, about, about 10%. 10 yeah. uh, so it's, it's amazing how, you know, over, you know, it seems like a long time, 10 years, but it goes by just like that. And... The, the roles have just reversed. No doubt, tech has taken over. That's one of that's my big takeaway here. That's why I care about this. It's just a, another another stamp and another uh, you know continuing of this trend of tech taking over the old industries of the U.S. Uh, Seth, you care about this one or no? Uh, no, uh, I don't. I can't believe Kevin. Uh, Kevin is from Oklahoma. He's got to care about this. Uh, but uh, no, I just think it's a changing of the guard and Exxon. Um, you know, they, I saw that they cut their employees' uh, 401k matches to maintain the dividend. So I don't really feel that sorry for Exxon. Uh, you know, got to go <laughs> sometime. <laughs> That's a fair point. All right, last one I got for you fellas is a very hyped IPO that we've been hearing about for the last couple months. We haven't talked about it here on this show yet. But this is a cloud service provider uh, called Snowflake. I won't go too deep into what they do, but they just released their S1 yesterday, and there's some ridiculous numbers on it. Revenue through the first half of 2020 doubled uh, from the first half of 2019. Gross profit tripled for the same period, and their net losses have narrowed a little bit. They're still losing quite a bit of money. I think 180 billion for the first half of the year, but nothing new about that. All of these tech companies are losing. Uh, Seth, we'll start with you, man. You uh, you care or not about this uh, Snowflake filing for IPO? I do. I do care. I think that this single IPO, along with Palantir, has the ability to sort of uh, reignite the software rally. Uh, I mean, this company, given the growth, and I think the gross profit tripled uh, on top of like 150% revenue growth, and then their net uh, dollar-based net retention is like 160%, and their average clients like 170k, just off the chart metrics. I mean, this thing could be like 50 times revenue. Uh, I, I know I won't get a chance to buy it, so uh, that that won't be great. But uh, I do think that it, it'll be good for the software sector and sentiment and momentum in that sector. 
Kevin? I, I agree 100% with Seth. It's, it's a, a bellwether to see about all the other software IPOs. I, you know, the, it is ridiculous numbers. So they doubled sales with the same amount of losses, basically, right. you know, within that same band, which is, which is amazing. Uh, I just hope all the other software companies in line have as good as metrics as as uh, Snowflake. Yeah, likely not. I care about this one. Uh, I want to point out something that Seth just said. Seth said the net net dollar retention that for any of you non-finance nerds basically that means for if they didn't gain any more customers their revenues grew 160 percent year over year and they also did gain 600 new customers so that's the type of growth we're talking about upsell, upsell, they're upselling upsell, upsell. Uh, out of the out of the booty so uh that's fun let's move on to pershings finally we're getting to this topic i've been wanting to for weeks now <laughs> as we discussed a few weeks ago bill ackman and pershing square they raised four billion dollars in a blank check company uh this isn't new we've seen a ton of them this year especially in the freight tech world we actually just got another one the, uh, today or yesterday lumina lumina or luminar mm-hmm. either way it's one of P- peter Thiel's investment companies they are going to go public through a spac three point four billion dollars we heard another one last week which was canoe uh, another uh, autonomous vehicle company there's literally every week there's one coming out we don't think ackman's going to go there with this spec obviously that's not typically his uh his ballpark but he did he is saying that he's going to target mature unicorns and these are com- of course private companies with valuations over one billion i think it would just be fun to discuss where do we think bill is going to go with this what do you think he's eyeing it what makes the most sense uh for you seth yeah, so by the way, I'm going to go ahead and plug our paper here. We're, we're doing a SPAC paper and passport research on Friday. So look out for that one for any of those passport research um, subscribers out there um, where we'll have a lot more on SPACs in general. Um, you know, I think with Ackman, uh, he's raising $4 billion, but then he's going to contribute another $3 billion from Pershing Square funds, and then you can lever it up. So, you know, a, a lot of areas he could go. He's going to go big. Uh, and, you know, if you look at Ackman's history, just to kind of invert this, you know, his specialty is consumer uh, industrials and maybe kind of consumer facing technology. So those would be my three sectors where you could kind of narrow it down to. Uh, I'd seen the media had kind of speculated on two names. Uh, they were thrown around Bloomberg uh, and Palantir, although Palantir just, I think, released their S1 today and is going to do a direct listing so you can probably count that one off. Uh, Bloomberg is a is a fantastic business, maybe more pricing power than any business I've ever seen, and it's ridiculously expensive. Um, that kind of makes sense. That The name that I came up with, given his history and success with restaurants like QSR and uh, Chipotle is uh, Chick-fil-A, uh, I think is where I would go after. But I, I'm not sure that the Kathy family would want to let him in. Uh, especially given his reputation for sometimes butting heads and they, they would want to maintain control. But that one is a one of the most amazing companies uh, out there and probably fits in that size bucket and his specialty uh, of what he looks at. Yeah, do you think do you think Bloomberg is a little too big? Uh, what, what are they valued at now? I have no idea. 80 like bill? 100 billion. Um, so, you know, we kind of talked about the math. If you if you throw in seven billion in equity, but you lever it up four or five times, you know it might be just a little bit too big. I, I don't know because you said he wants a, contr- a controlling stake, right? So, um, you know I, I don't know, but that's the one I've I've seen uh, out in the media. Kevin, give us your thoughts. You know, I, I think both of those points are really good from, from, from Seth. Bloomberg and Chick Fil A are amazing companies, and they're probably overpriced. 
to, to, to get your hands on either one of them would, would take such a, a premium because they're, they're, they are such fantastic companies that I don't think Acme will go after it. Um, I'm going through the 2019 Forbes, America's Largest Private Companies, and it's almost like picking a name out of a hat. Uh, you, you do want to, to you know, consumer-facing type of situations. And one name that caught my eye, and this is completely random, is Bass Pro Shops. So Bass Pro Shops bought Cabela's, their main rival, a few years ago, and they own this very large niche of outdoor uh, type of super stores, experiences, experience shopping. So I think that's, that's very interesting and, and probably has enough cash and enough leverage left over to maybe do a couple bolt-ons. Uh, you know, bring in some, uh, you know, nichier players out of that. So it, it's interesting, but it's it's totally random guess. Yeah, I mean, I, there's no wrong answer here, right? Because, you know, Bill mm-hmm. Ackman's a bit of a wild, a wild fella anyway. He, he does a lot of things that people can't explain. But, yeah, I think Bloomberg's a little bit too expensive. I think it's a little too big. Chick-fil-A is probably the best-run company in America. I don't think I'm, – I'm with Seth on the fact that the, the, the family that runs them probably is not going to wet mm-hmm. uh, Bill in. So here, here's my ideas. Uh, my initial thought when we wanted to talk about this about six weeks ago was Airbnb. I thought that's in the wheelhouse now that they've that the valuation has come down, but it doesn't seem like that's going to be available for them. Uh, Airbnb's moving forward with their IPO later on this year. And then I've got a couple that made a little bit of sense for me. If I was looking at food, I think if he wanted to replicate what he did in 2011, doing a, a SPAC with Burger King, taking them public, I thought Panda Express might sign, sound like a decent idea. Uh, a big company, been around since the 70s, a lot of stores, uh, you know, strong brand. Mm-hmm. But then another two I came up with was Epic Games. So this is the people that make Fortnite. They've been around for a long time, uh, since the early 90s. They've gotten a, a lot of media attention recently because of their battle with Apple. Yeah. But it's a company that's grown massively. They have, uh, they're, they're only owned, I think, 25 or 20% of it's owned by Tencent. But they've, they've, got, they've got shares to give away uh, that they'd be willing to do. And there's been rumor that they might go public soon. So I think that one kind of makes sense. And then the last one is Bose. Uh, the, the the speaker company Bose B O S E, um, and I think this because of the way that Sonos has been running up this year they've or they've they've had a very a strong uh, public interest since their IPO I think Bose makes a lot of sense again just really strong brands that uh, that he could get onto Seth do you have any final thoughts on this before we move on to department stores? Well, I would just say one thing Bill Ackman has a very long and storied history with the railroads, uh, so he you know he he made huge home runs on a couple railroad investments. And, and was very close and actually installed the late, great Hunter Harrison uh, in a lot of this PSR stuff. So I think, you know, you can probably count the number of transportation companies that are over $40 billion on one hand or maybe two. So, But that's something to be mindful of. So he, he does know the transportation space. Maybe, and, you know, with valuations a little beat up in COVID, maybe he comes, swoops in and, and buys something in the transportation space. I'd, I'd welcome him back with open arms. Definitely. How about you? Yeah, I would too. I, I think it'd be a, a great buy if you can find the, the, the right acquisition. Well, let's talk about department store bankruptcies a, a little bit here. We have had a lot of them this year. Like I said, there's been a 26. I'll just name a couple for you. The latest one was Steinmart, but huge ones like Lord & Taylor, um, Brooks Brothers, Lucky Brand, GNC even, Pier 1, True Religion, JCPenney's, Neiman Marcus, J. Crew. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. We're probably going to see some more this year. That's what we're going to. That's what we're here to talk about. Uh, Seth, can you give me? Okay, let's go. Let's go long short. Do you think long short? Do we see another major department store or retailer, big box store bankruptcy before the end of the year? And if long, give me an example of what you think might happen. 
Well, I, you know, I do have one question because I think major and, and I, and I come down to four or five guys. So okay. if you're talking about Nordstrom and Macy's, which are the only two left, uh, I don't think either of those go make a uh, bankrupt Nordstrom is family run and very conservatively and well run. And then Macy's did a big uh, capital raise, I think back in March. So I think those two are off the table and they're going to, are going to be fine. You know, they're not going to do great, but they'll be fine. Uh, you know, when it comes down to the lower end, the Dillards and the Belks and the um, those type, and I don't think Kohl's, if you count Kohl's as a department store, will go bankrupt. Um, you know, I think it's going to be more of those sort of uh, also ran sort of billion dollar or less market caps that some of the one with the ones you missed, I would definitely go long if you're talking about, you know, sort of a subscale uh, regional department store player. Uh, I'll go long. Now, I have a one company in particular that's been on the top of my mind, and it's not because it's really just because I, I I just went into one of their stores for the first time in maybe ten years, and it was a Bed Bath and Beyond, and the store hasn't changed one bit. And I've read that they've had kind of struggles on e-commerce, but you seem to like Bed Bath and Beyond. At least you liked it when it was beaten down uh, quite a bit back in March. What do you think about Bed Bath and Beyond? Any chance they got a decent balance sheet? But any chance of them uh, running into Chapter Eleven before the end of the year? I don't think so. They actually put in place a new CEO uh, from Target who ran, a, and you saw how well Target did. If you looked at their earnings report, I think you guys talked about this on the latest podcast last week that I listened to. Uh, Target is a well-oiled machine and is doing fantastic. And so I, got, I think the guy that they brought in knows what he's doing. It, you got some real sort of painful changes that'll need to take time. You know, he's trying to rationalize the store fleet. And they, you know, they they don't sell anything that's not with that 20% off coupon. But I, I think Bed Bath will survive. I'm not as bullish on it after, you know, I think it's doubled or tripled off the bottom. Uh, but I, I think it'll be fine. All right, Kevin, what you got? I, you know, I, I was I was kind of high about Ackman buying Bass Pro and, and stuff, and now I, I'm gonna basically trash a little bit of, of in-store shopping and, and retailers. And I think the department stores would be fine. But I do think the, um, the the more, you know, specialized, you know, mall stores is what I would call them. You know, the, the J. Cruz, the Pier One, maybe the home stores that have been just languishing for forever, or the sign marts that uh, were decimated by TJ Maxx and, and Ross stores. Uh, we're going to see uh, quite a few more. I think we're going to see uh, across the line of those specialty, uh, let's, let's call them specialty re- retailers. That's, that's the term. I, yeah. That is the term. Okay. <clears throat> so I think, you know, true religion, things that are go in and out of fashion or, or yeah, trends. That shit's never been in fashion. <laughs> yeah, that, right? It, it, th- things like that. that uh, <laughs> they, you know, items like that. I, I think there's there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of private equity jumped in. They're, they're leveraged. We're going to see a lot of bankruptcies. Yeah, I'm yeah, with you on uh, the specialty retailers. Go ahead, Seth. No, I was just, you know, I, I think we always talk about how private equity doesn't have a great history with uh, asset-based trucking companies. I think that's also true when you lever up a mall-based specialty retailer uh, into a, you know, the biggest downturn in a hundred years, you're going to have some more bankruptcies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think one of the specialty retailers that, that I've gotten written down that I've been thinking about is GNC. Uh, I don't know if yeah. they, they, I don't know if they've declared bankruptcy, but they've got to be on the brink. Uh, there's so many of them. Another one, GameStop. I yeah. thought GameStop oh, was going to go bankruptcy. I thought they were going to go bankrupt like 10 years ago. I mean, nobody buys those games uh, in store anymore. They're always buying yeah. online. And all these names remind me of Radio Shack. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Radio Shack. So, 
that they won't be around much longer. Another one, uh, Seth, and I wanted to hear your your thoughts on the, the high-end brands. They seem to be weathering the storm pretty well, but I, th- I think of Capri Holdings, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you know them. They're the owners of Michael Kors, Jimmy Choo, and Versace. They, it seems like the, the high-end stores are doing pretty well, but those like middle brands that aren't quite the Louis Vuitton, that, that type of the level, it, yeah, it feels like th- those type of brands aren't going to survive this. A- am, I, am I in the right thinking here, Seth, or do you think they'll be fine? Well, I think there might be a little bit of distortion because what you're talking about is luxury brands, and those are going to be tied to Chinese consumer spending, which is earlier in the cycle in terms of bouncing back. So if you were looking you know, to invest money right now, uh, Chinese consumer, a lot of the Chinese macroeconomic data is a lot better. They've probably handled the COVID stuff a lot better. It's more opened up and the spending's returning. So uh, I don't know that I would... Uh, you, you got to give me more info on the on the medium brands, but um, you know I, I don't know because that's kind of a wide swath. But sure. my first intuition was that a lot of those are doing better because the Chinese high income sort of uh, luxury spender is returning. Okay, fair enough. All right, so let's talk about inflation or deflation. This is something, Kevin. This is uh, your topic for the day, so I'm going to let you take the reins after I give a little bit of a little bit of background here. And yeah. I, I think it's a good topic to talk about because. Jerome Powell is set to give a virtual press conference from Jackson Hole on Thursday in which people are expecting him to give a, a kind of an overhaul on the Fed's the, the Fed's outlook on inflation. Mm-hmm. People are expecting him that they're going to say that they're going to allow <clears throat> inflation to run and even and, and look to let inflation run above that average target of 2%, which makes sense. It's been running under 2% for every year but two since the financial crisis. I think it'll be fun if we made a little drinking game out of his speech. I think we're going to hear the words average inflation at least a dozen times. But we'll watch this. They're trying to avoid that uh, Japanification idea. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it, it happens often. The economy slows. People hold back money. They, they, they hold back on purchases, hoping for lower prices, that deflationary period. Kevin, give us go ahead, go ahead and give us the thoughts about entering a deflationary period because there's people investors are, are split oh, yeah, right it's, now. It's, it's a hot topic. You, know, you have all this uh, flood of liquidity hitting the system, and everyone's running around saying inflation, inflation, inflation. Uh, but but there's one one more stop that money needs to take on the road, and that is for banks to actually lend it out, and that's where money creation really really happens and, and hits the, the actual economy, it's, it's, it's almost like the liquidity. If I had a, a counterfeiting press in my garage, which I don't, <laughs> Andrew, I don't. But if I had that, I, I, could, I could print a trillion dollars worth of, of cash. And if I just left it in the garage, it's only because you don't have a garage. You're keeping it in the, It's only because you don't have a garage right now. You're, keep, oh, know, you're right? keeping it somewhere. I, I'm keeping it somewhere else. <laughs> but if I just kept that trillion dollars in, in a garage, it's not inflationary whatsoever. Now, once I take it out and start spending it, then it becomes highly inflationary. So it's really the appetite for credit and consumer credit and, and that power. So that, that's a real key and, and, and flux to it. And some people call it, you know, between the money supply and the velocity of money. Yeah, and, velocity. And velocity, yeah. So and, and spending it is the velocity of money. So mm-hmm. I think that I, th- I think we've trended this way since the Great Recession. I think this is another bump in the road uh, on a on a really a deflationary environment and uh, what you might call a Japanification uh, of the world economy and the, the U.S. being part of that um, because of you know debt levels and also demographic changes. Seth, you got any uh, you got any thoughts on Kevin's deflationary <laughs> environment uh, idea, or you think we're headed towards inflation like the rest of the market? Yeah, well, Kevin's a gold bug, so uh, you know. I, I, <laughs> I am an Austrian. 
I'm not. I know he doesn't. He doesn't expect Goldilocks uh, inflation. He's he either thinks we're having massive deflation or massive inflation. Um, you know, I'd say a couple things on that. So I think you know, if you think about the situation geopolitically, you basically have China and the U.S. going head to head for staying or becoming number one in the world. And so I think as the the U.S., one of your biggest fears. To, uh, to going down that path is that you get stuck in a Japan-style deflation. And there's a very well-defined template for that because it's been going on since the stock market crashed in 1989 in, in Japan. And so, you know, there's a lot of interesting angles there. They got to be careful because given the fact, I think we have $26 trillion in debt, every 1%, uh, you know, in interest rates in the 10-year, uh, you know, is it adds up to billions and billions and billions of dollars in interest expense. So that's kind of a fine line. And you, you don't, you don't want to get back to the Volcker days where we had double digit inflation. Uh, the other thing I would say, just from an investment perspective, which I think is intriguing and interesting, is, you know, a lot of people call Jerome Powell uh, P.E. Powell because he worked in private equity. It's going to be bad for private equity because if you get a lot of inflation, interest rates are going to move up. That's going to make leverage more expensive. And not only that, but in, from an investment perspective, you might see a regime change. I already think you're going to see this because as the world opens up and we get a vaccine uh, or, you know, tame this thing down, the, the economy should grow again, which favors, uh, you know, value and cyclicals over growth stocks. And then as interest rates grow up, that'll dent the growth stocks valuations. And DCF, but it has all sorts of implications. It's also a weak dollar policy, which will favor, you know, emerging market investments, oil, things like that. Um, so it it, it kind of gets my mind spinning. But um, it is interesting that um, you know we've had below two percent inflation for for like a decade, right? So um, you know, obviously, I, I look forward to seeing what he has to say. So on that note, as you said, inflation's been under 2% basically every year except for two since mm -hmm. the since the global financial crisis. Do you think, it, let's say that Powell does come out tomorrow or Thursday, does come out Thursday and say that the Fed will be focused on running inflation above their target. We don't know that for sure, but we think it will. Do you think it's necessary? I don't know if it's necessary. I don't know if they can actually do it. I mean, they can model it, right? But unless, you know, money money is created when people, you know, most, you know, you can print money, of course, but but it's all in debt. You know, 75, 80% of all the currency, U.S. dollar, of course, is debt. So unless uh, people want to take on debt and, you know, start that process of money velocity, uh, there, there is no inflation. So I don't know how much the uh, the Fed really has control of it. What do you think, Seth? Is this is this necessary? You just said that inflation's been running low for a long time. Do, do you think it's necessary for them to focus on running it above two percent? Uh, Kevin's referring to pushing on a string, by the way, as the term. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, I do. I will say this: I don't think that they should raise interest rates anytime soon. So I'm sort of on board with that camp. You know, I think, uh, and obviously, you know, the traditional arguments. When I look at my cost of healthcare and housing and and what, what else am I missing? There's one other thing that I'm blanking on right now, but uh, there's one huge cost that's also running up uh, education. Uh, that may come down due to COVID because a lot of that's going to move online, and, which is inherently mm -hmm. deflationary uh, because tech disruptors tend to be deflationary in nature. So, uh, you know, but those last two, uh, I think you got to be careful, but I think that uh, deflation is, is the worst outcome. And we know from the Great Depression in Japan, that that takes you that takes you decades to get out of. Um, so uh, I do kind of understand where they're coming from. Yeah, 
<clears throat> I guess I'm somewhere in between you two. Mm-hmm. I, I think that I don't think it's completely necessary now, but I'm also with Seth in the not raising interest rates anytime soon boat. But if you, we look at service side, where up until COVID, the U.S. spend the majority of their money, service side inflation is not going anywhere. Their biggest input is labor. They've got we've got 30 million people on unemployment benefits. Mm-hmm. We're not going to see any upward wage inflation anytime soon. It's going to take a long time to work through that glut of people unemployed right now. So I don't see that becoming uh, a, a big deal, really. Uh, so I'm, I'm actually in the case that I'm excited to see what Powell says, but I'm in the case that doing nothing right now might be the best might be the best plan but we'll keep up with that we'll talk about it again uh on thursday we'll, we'll see where that goes but we've only got about a minute here let's ask uh, my time to kill question for you seth Otri now sits at 24.7. This is our outbound tender rejection index. It needs to climb another three or four points to cross over that 2018 all-time high do you think we do it no I, i'm gonna go under how about you? I, I'm going to go under two. Uh, I, I, th- I think it's a, it's a natural bound, and that's where we're at. Yeah, I agree. I think we are reaching that point. I don't think we go much higher from here. We, we keep seeing little glips where it falls down for a few days and then rallies a little bit higher. I think we, we eventually hit our peak here and kind of fall down. And, and even if it's stayed at 23 24 25% for a long period oh, of time, I mean, that's... That's carrier's delight. Yeah, that's, yeah. Booming, yeah. Uh, oh, by the way, just a... a, um, a Update to a long short that we did, I think, three weeks ago. We talked about will the S&P cross over into all-time highs but before the end of the year. It did. We also did long short whether it would stay there. That's to be foreseen. But we have hit all-time highs on the S&P. So I wanted to give you all an update on that. Next week, we're going to be continuing our conversation with Ben Gordon. He's going to come back on. We're going to talk about uh, SPAC some more. We're going to talk about Amazon acquisition rumors. Uh, you know, we, talk, we heard about AMC. We heard about uh, companies all over, the, all over the world. So we're going to be enjoying that. next. That'll be next Wednesday with Ben Gordon. But thank you all for enjoying this. And uh, we will see you next week, everyone. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks. Thanks.